Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. You can now enjoy all the Roald Dahl audiobooks from Matilda to the BFG on one fizz-whizzing app. First, listen to the free sample chapters from his best-loved stories. Like what you hear? Then you can download the complete audiobook right then and there. And with celebrity readers like Kate Winslet, Stephen Fry and Chris O'Dowd, plus sound design from Pinewood Studios, there's never been a better reason to swivel your ears. Just search for Roald Dahl audiobooks in the Apple App Store and download it now. <laughs> Somebody just whiz pop. And welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Uh, um, sorry, Penguin, but this podcast has been taken over by me, Douglas Hodge, a.k.a. Willy Wonka, in the new musical of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. In this episode, I'm going to tell you all about our brand new Roald Dahl audiobooks. There's a host of amazing readers to introduce you to, so sit down in your favourite shed, waggle your ears, and prepare yourself for an audio feast. I was now a scruffy little boy, with grease and oil all over me. But that was because I spent all day in the workshop helping my father with the cars. He ran his fingers slowly back and forth along the length of it, stroking it lovingly. And the shiny paper wrapper made little sharp, crackly noises in the quiet room. The hammer, Hortensia said, is actually a ruddy great cannonball on the end of long bit wire, and the thrower risks it round and round, his or her head faster and faster, and then lets it go. You have to be terrifically strong. A dream, he said, as it goes whiffling through the night air, is making a tiny little buzzing, humming noise. But this little buzzy hum is so silvery soft... It is impossible for a human being to be hearing it. One child isn't going to be nearly enough for me today. I won't be full up until I've eaten at least three juicy little children. Please listen while I tell you now about a most fantastic cow. Miss Milky Daisy was her name, and when, aged seven months, she came to live with us, she did her best to look the same as all the rest. What a lot of hairy-faced men there are around nowadays. When a man grows hair all over his face, it is impossible to tell what he really looks like. Perhaps that's why he does it. He'd rather you didn't know. No animal is half so vile as Crockywock, the crocodile. On Saturdays he likes to crunch six juicy children for his lunch. Oh, Mummy, underneath the sheet there's something moving on my feet. Some horrid, creepy, crawly thing. Do you think it could be Stingerling? They both lay on the ground, fighting and clawing and yelling and struggling frantically to get up again. But before they could do this, the mighty peach was upon them. There was a crunch. And then there was silence. Silence. <laughs> 
guess any of those voices? You'll have a chance to find out more later. But I can tell you now that the first one was Peter Serafinowicz, who loved the story from a very early age. Here's what he had to say about it. It was surprising to me how much of it had stayed with me. The whole thing about describing his dad as smiling with his eyes. and There's a bit in the book where they have to slice open raisins and then stitch them back up again. That stayed with me in, and then reappeared in a weird way because I did this show, Look Around You, which was um, a comedy show uh, that was a spoof of old educational science programs from the 70s. And uh, sounds hilarious, doesn't it? In that, I wrote that with um, a brilliant guy called Robert Popper. And we wrote this bit about, uh, it was in the episode about the brain, uh, about a, a pea and the brain inside a pea. Um, you know, just like a pea that you would eat. Uh, and in, in, the, uh, in the show, we slice it open and we see the, we poke out the brain with a little scalpel, this tiny little pea brain. <laughs> and then we pop it back in and then sew it up with green thread. And I think that's where it must have come from. But Peter wasn't the only one of our readers for whom Roald Dahl was quite the celebrity. For Richard Ayoade, who read The Twits, Roald Dahl was his favourite author. And Julian Ryan Tutt, who read James and the Giant Peach, feels that Roald Dahl had significance for a whole generation of readers. Um, when I was young, he was my favourite writer, and he was the probably the first writer I became aware of as someone who was currently working, and I'd read about him and knew the various details of his writing practice and the pads he wrote on and the pencils and how they were sharpened and the sleeping bag and all of the, you know, romantic images that there are of him um, in his little hut at the end of the garden. He featured for my generation, I think, as a, as a very big personality because he was a writer of classic children's stories. He was also a very popular person who was often in the news or covered because of his his charisma and also he wrote many other things like television programs like the 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 armchair thrillers so he was a he was a big big presence i think in in lots of children's lives in in my generation and of course moving forward ah sweet nostalgia and speaking of sweets we couldn't spend a Penguin podcast talking about Roald Dahl without mentioning Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. All those chocolates! Nutty crunch surprise, whipple scrumptious fudge mallow delight. It makes me want to visit the dentist. Here are some Willy Wonka creations that didn't work out quite so well. Lickable wallpaper for nurseries, it said on the next door. Lovely stuff, lickable wallpaper, cried Mr Wonka, rushing past. It has pictures of fruits on it. Bananas, apples, oranges, grapes, pineapples, strawberries and snozberries. Snozberries, said Mike TV. Don't interrupt, said Mr Wonka. The wallpaper has pictures of all these fruits printed on it. And when you lick the picture of a banana, it tastes of banana. When you lick a strawberry, it tastes of strawberry. And when you lick a snozberry... It tastes just exactly like a snozberry. What does a snozberry taste like? You're mumbling again, said Mr Wonka. Speak louder next time. On we go. Hurry up. Hot ice creams 
for cold days, it said on the next door. Extremely useful in the winter, said Mr Wonka, rushing on. Hot ice cream warms you up no end in freezing weather. I also make hot ice cubes for putting in hot drinks. Hot ice cubes make hot drinks hotter. Cows that give chocolate milk, it said on the next door. Ah, oh, my pretty little cows, cried Mr Wonka. How oh, I love those cows. But why can't we see them? asked Veruca Salt. Why do we have to go rushing on past all these lovely rooms? We shall stop in time, called out Mr Wonka. Don't be so madly impatient. Fizzy lifting drinks, it said on the next door. Oh, those are fabulous, cried Mr Wonka. They fill you with bubbles, and the bubbles are full of a special kind of gas, and this gas is so terrifically lifting that it lifts you right off the ground, just like a balloon. And up you go, until your head hits the ceiling, and there you stay. But how do you come down again? asked little Charlie. You do a burp, of course, said Mr Wonka. You do a great, big, long, rude burp, and up comes the gas, and down comes you. But don't drink it outdoors. There's no knowing how high up you'll be carried if you do that. I gave some to an old Oompa Loompa once, out of the backyard, and he went up and up and disappeared out of sight. It was very sad. I never saw him again. He should have burped, Charlie said. Of course he should have burped, said Mr Wonka. I stood there shouting, burp, you silly ass, burp, or you'll never come down again. But he didn't, or couldn't, or wouldn't. I don't know which. Maybe he was too polite. He must be on the moon by now. On the next door, it said, square sweets that look round. Wait, cried Mr Wonka, skidding suddenly to a halt. I am very proud of my square sweets that look round. Let's take a peek. Oh, I do love a pun. And wasn't that reading just superb? Well, it, it was read by me. Still to come, Miriam Margulies being revolting and Quentin Blake exercising magic on a tortoise. But first, the bad guys. From Mr Twit's disgusting beard, the terrifying Mrs Trunchbull and her insidious Chokey, the hideous Grand High Witch, to families so flawed they would leave Freud floundering. Roald Dahl could never be accused of sugarcoating his characters, but he clearly hit a grisly nerve in readers' collective imagination. Here we have Stephen Mangan, who read some of the revolting rhymes, and Chris O'Dowd, who read Fantastic Mr Fox, talking about Roald Dahl's unique approach to storytelling. The idea of these, um, these families who are starving to death doesn't come from a very happy place. And I like that it's not... What I like about Dahl is that it's not always redemptive. Like in Matilda... There's no redemption for the the mother character in the end. Like, it doesn't come out like, and she's like, I'm sorry for being a terrible mother, and they have that touching moment. It just never really happens. And I guess that that's more true to life. I imagine most kids, you read, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Danny, Champion of the World. So all those books, they were so subversive. They feel so uh, naughty. Because all the things that you kind of hope are going to happen but, you know, aren't really in nice stories supposed to happen, do happen. Um, the oppressed turn around and savage <laughs> the oppressors in brutal ways, in fun and brutal ways. He's just got a great sense of humour. Um, and it's interesting to read them now and to, to realise that 
it's funny as an adult and as a child. And speaking of bad characters beyond redemption, which Roald Dahl villain do you think was referred to as a giant in green breeches? Here's Kate Winslet to give you a clue. Miss Trunchbull, the headmistress, was something else altogether. She was a gigantic holy terror, a fierce, tyrannical monster who frightened the life out of the pupils and teachers alike. There was an aura of menace about her, even at a distance, and when she came up close, you could almost feel the dangerous heat radiating from her as from a red-hot rod of metal. When she marched, Miss Trunchbull never walked, she always marched like a stormtrooper with long strides and arms a-swinging. When she marched along a corridor, you could actually hear her snorting as she went, and if a group of children happened to be in her path, she ploughed right on through them like a tank, with small people bouncing off her to left and right. Thank goodness we don't meet many people like her in this world, although they do exist, and all of us are likely to come across at least one of them in a lifetime. If you ever do, you should behave as you would if you met an enraged rhinoceros out in the bush. Climb up the nearest tree and stay there until it has gone away. Scary stuff! That was Kate Winslet reading an extract from Matilda about the terrifying Miss Trunchbull, if you hadn't guessed already. Now, from the scary to the revolting, with a rhyme read by Miriam Margulies. When little Snow White's mother died, the king, her father, up and cried, Oh, what a nuisance, what a life! Now I must find another wife! It's never easy for a king to find himself that sort of thing. He wrote to every magazine and said, I'm looking for a queen. At least 10,000 girls replied and begged to be the royal bride. The king said with a shifty smile, I'd like to give each one a trial. However, in the end, he chose a lady called Miss Macalose, who brought along a curious toy that seemed to give her endless joy. This was a mirror framed in brass, a magic talking looking glass. Ask it something day or night, it always got the answer right. For instance, if you were to say, Oh, mirror, what's for lunch today? The thing would answer in a trice. Today it's scrambled eggs and rice. That was Miriam Margulies reading from Revolting Rhymes. Imagination is part and parcel of the Roald Dahl storytelling experience, and his stories and their illustrations conjured up a lot of nostalgia for our readers. Here's what Stephen Mangan had to say. You know, hand in hand with Dahl go the illustrations from the books, which, you know... Um, captured beautifully all those characters and the sort of oddness of his world the upside downness of it a lot of the time uh, but it's just that it's, that it's that roaring imagination of his this is a Roald Dahl takeover of the Penguin podcast I'm Douglas Hodge just in case you'd forgotten already did you ever hear the story of how Roald Dahl sent a Norwegian sandal to an illustrator it wasn't because he didn't like his espadrilles or anything like that it was to indicate a style of footwear that the big friendly giant might wear. Well, that illustrator was, of course, Quentin Blake. And one of the great delights of this new collection of audiobooks is the fact that he himself reads the new version of Isio Trot. 
Isiotrot is a story of a lonely old man who uses a tortoise. Isiotrot is tortoise, spelled backwards, to woo the love of his life. Who said romance is dead? Or tortoises, for that matter. Mrs Silver was a widow who also lived alone. And although she didn't know it, it was she who was the object of Mr Hoppy's secret love. He'd loved her from his balcony for many years, but he was a very shy man, and he had never been able to bring himself to give her even the smallest hint of his love. Every morning, Mr Hoppy and Mrs Silver exchanged polite conversation. The one looking down from above, the other looking up, but that was as far as it ever went. The distance between their balconies might not have been more than a few yards, but to Mr Hoppy it seemed like a million miles. He longed to invite Mrs Silver up for a cup of tea and a biscuit, but every time he was about to form the words on his lips, his courage failed him. As I said, he was a very, very shy man. Oh, if only, he kept telling himself, if only he could do something tremendous like saving her life or rescuing her from a gang of armed thugs. If only he could perform some great feat that would make him a hero in her eyes. If only. The trouble with Mrs Silver was that she gave all her love to somebody else. And that somebody else was a small tortoise called Alfie. Every day, when Mr Hoppy looked over his balcony and saw Mrs Silver whispering endearments to Alfie and stroking his shell, he felt absurdly jealous. He wouldn't even have minded becoming a tortoise himself if it meant Mrs Silver stroking his shell each morning and whispering endearments to him. Some people think when you make an audiobook, you just give someone a copy of the book, sit them down with a microphone and come back when they're done. Ha! Good heavens, no! To help bring the books to life in the way illustrations help the text, a whole range of effects and details have been added to these new audiobooks. Have a listen to these sound effects in action in The Enormous Crocodile, read by Stephen Fry. Hello there, Enormous Crocodile, sang the roly-poly bird. We don't often see you up here in the jungle. Ah, said the crocodile, I have secret plans and clever tricks. I hope it's not something nasty, sang the roly-poly bird. Nasty, cried the crocodile. Of course it's not nasty. It's delicious. It's luscious, it's super, it's mushous, it's duper. It's better than rotten old fish. You mash it and munch it. You chew it and crunch it. It's lovely to hear it go squish. It must be berries, sang the roly-poly bird. Berries are my favourite food in the world. Is it raspberries, perhaps? Or could it be strawberries? The enormous crocodile laughed so much, his teeth rattled together like pennies in a money box. Crocodiles don't eat Berries, he said, we eat little boys and girls, and sometimes we eat roly-poly birds as well. Very quickly, the crocodile reached up and snapped his jaws at the roly-poly bird. He just missed the bird, but he managed to catch hold of the long, beautiful feathers in its tail. 
the roly-poly bird gave a shriek of terror and shot straight up into the air, leaving its tail feathers behind in the enormous crocodile's mouth. Did you know the roly-poly bird effect was made with two rubber gloves and a lot of feathers? I bet they had a lot of fun doing that. When you think of Roald Dahl, you might conjure up his shed, his characters, a favourite story, or those infamous Norwegian sandals that Roald Dahl wore himself. We visited the Roald Dahl Museum and Storytelling Centre in Great Missenden to find out more about the storyteller and his stories. Well, my work routine is, is, is very simple. And it's always been the same for the last 45 years. The great thing, of course, is never to work for too long at a stretch because after about two hours, you are not at your highest peak of concentration, so you have to stop. Some writers choose certain times to work, others other times it suits me to start rather late. I start at 10 o'clock in the morning and I stop at 12. Always, however well I'm going, but I always stay there till 12, even if I'm a bit stuck. You have to keep your bottom on the chair and stick it out. Otherwise, if you start getting in the habit of walking away when you're stuck, you'll never get it done. My name's Rachel White and I work at the Roldar Museum and Story Centre as the archivist. Uh, my job is to look after Roldar's collection of manuscripts and papers and objects that he created during his lifetime. We're here in the museum um, and sitting in the archive office. You can probably hear the air conditioning unit, um, which we have on all the time in the archive store. This is to keep the environment really stable so that the collections are basically preserved for as long as possible. Um, you might also be able to hear the audiovisual from the museum. My office sits right over the museum and we can hear the great um, uh, audiovisual tape which has people like J.K. Rowling and Philip Pullman talking about their careers as a writer. And what is in the Roald Dahl archive? A big collection of things. We have his um, correspondence from his publishers and his editors. We have all of his manuscripts, so all of the papers he created when he was writing his stories. He kept different drafts of all these different stories and he used them to refer back to and work from. He kept everything, which is great for us because we can now go back and look at all these different versions of the stories he created. Uh, we also have a photograph he took. We have the letters he wrote to his mother when he was a little boy at school. We have various papers that he kind of created when he was having his interests, such as gardening or wine files or things like that. And we have his things like short stories and his ideas books. Um, these were books he created during his early life as a writer and he'd just note down ideas that occurred to him and then he'd go back and use these when he was creating his stories. Wow, that sounds like so much stuff. How do you organise it? It's actually quite easy in a sense because we've tried to keep things as close as possible to how Roald Dahl organised it. So when they came into the collection, the, the archivist at the time wanted to keep the same order that he kept them in. This is because if we mix up the order, it means we can't actually understand why he kept things as they did. and It means that anybody using the archive for research has to second guess what his intentions were. So as far as possible, we keep things in the same order he kept them in. Um, we group them roughly in order, chronological order, as he did, and then we might group them by um, uh, objects, so we keep the photographs separate from the manuscripts, for instance. And uh, what is the most surprising thing that visitors can find there? Um, in the museum itself, I think the most surprising thing is probably this bottle of spinal shavings on the desk of the writing hut. So if you go into the museum, uh, you'll see Roald Dahl's, the interior of Roald Dahl's writing hut, which has been reconstructed. 
and on this desk you'll see a hip bone, which is his, original hip bone, and a little bottle filled with fluid which has spinal shavings in. He had a crash in the desert when he was a fighter pilot in the Second World War and he had many injuries to his back um, and all over his body but as a result of that through his life he had to have several operations to correct his spine because there was lots of pain. And being Roald Dahl and he was interested in medicine and this sort of thing he kept the bottle full of spinal shavings as a memento on his desk. So if you go into the museum um, and look in the writing hut you'll see the little bottle full of really rather nasty looking bits. Um, and those are spinal shavings. And next to them you'll see his giant hip bone, which is the biggest hip bone his surgeon said he'd ever seen. And I think that probably qualifies as the most strange and interesting thing we have. Wow, would you say that that's probably the children's favourite thing? It's certainly something we point children towards. Um, he did like the grotesque and the mysterious and the strange, um, and I think children, most children love that kind of thing. And what do you think the archive tells us about Roald Dahl's writing process? I think a lot. Um, because he was so meticulous in how he organised himself, um, we can actually trace the development of the stories and that's fascinating. What he'd do is he'd write everything out longhand, he'd use yellow legal paper from America and he'd use a yellow pencil, which was, uh, the, the brand was Dixon Ticonderoga and they had to be this brand, and it had to be this yellow legal paper and he'd get it shipped in from America from his publishers there. He'd write everything out longhand in pencil, he didn't use a typewriter. When he'd done that he'd pass it over to his secretary to type up she'd send back the typescript, he'd go through it with a pencil. At this point he'd often send it off to his editors and they'd look through it and they'd make suggestions and if he liked what they suggested he would cross through things, he'd write no or yes. He'd often draw bubbles around bits of text and arrows and he'd fit them into different parts and often he'd do a cut and paste technique where he'd literally cut up a, a page of typescript and sellotape it into a, a, a page of manuscript and so you get this sort of half manuscript, half typescript bits held together with bits of sellotape often coming apart now, um, and that's how we create them. And we get this amazing sort of development, so you can see how stories developed. Um, and you can actually trace the progress of characters. So for instance, Matilda started off as an evil little girl who, who just played tricks for the sake of it, and her parents were lovely. Um, and he didn't like this, and he, he chopped and changed and went through in different processes. And eventually she turns into a nice little girl because he f figured this worked better. There were also early drafts from Revolting Rhymes and Dirty Beasts, especially from Revolting Rhymes, where he did a, a draft of Goldilocks and Three Bears. And it's brilliant. It sort of goes to this long story, and it's almost, I, I think it's perfect, and it's really, really funny. Um, but at the end, and at the beginning of the, the thing, he just crosses it through and says, dismal, a failure, no good. And it never got published, um, which is a huge shame as far as I'm concerned. But it's, it's, it's fun to read. Um, and I don't know why he didn't like it, but he was very, very self-critical, which is good. I think you need to be self-critical. And that's why his, his stories are so great, because he did think all the time, is this boring anybody? Could it be faster? Are the children going to get bored? And did Roald Dahl ever reference audio, sound effects or voices in his notes? He didn't really talk about sound effects as such. However, he did intend his books to be read aloud. And there's several um, instances where he's talking about writing and being a writer. And he was very, very, um, he thought it was very, very important that, that children should be read aloud to. And you can tell this in the cadence and the rhythm of the rhymes in the books. He puts a lot of poetry in his books. So things like The Enormous Crocodile, The Enormous Crocodile will be reciting poetry about how he wants to go off and eat children and yum, yum, yum in my tum, tum, tum. And likewise in the BFG, the BFG has his own language. And you could just tell that Roldar loved this um, rhythm. He loved making up words and the cadence and how it's supposed to be read aloud to children. So I think that was always in the background of his, of his mind when he was writing, how it would sound for a parent to be reading this to their children. And what is your favourite thing in the archive? 
it's the um, fantastic Mr. Fox early draft of this book which he, he wrote. Um, I think the drawings are ma amazing. He wasn't a great artist, but he, he was managed to, with a few little lines, conjure up this uh, family of foxes going through a supermarket with the shopping trolleys. Um, and it's, it's wonderful, it's just really, really cute. And he did it for himself, I think, um, but it's such a good visual clue to how, and, and she shows his, his sense of humour as well. Um, and his love of animals and his love of foxes. He obviously had a real fondness for foxes, is all I can say, because it, they're such cute drawings. And lastly, what is your favourite Roald Dahl story? Um, this is a tricky one because I do like a lot of them. I'm going to have to come back to Danny, Champion of the World, which was my favourite when I was a little girl. I think because who wouldn't want to live in a gypsy caravan growing up? Um, and it was this kind of sort of almost like a quite a tr traditional story. Um, of a boy and his father having adventures together and it's almost like he's best friends with his father and they go off and have these amazing and slightly quirky adventures and who, who doesn't like the idea of sewing sleeping pills into raisins it's such a sort of ingenious and mad idea and the idea as well that the whole of their community is involved in this big scam of pheasant poaching so you've got the, the doctor and the vicar's wife and the local policemen and they're all in it together and it's quite of a cosy community feeling um, wrapped up with this boy and his great relationship with his dad and being outside in nature as well and as, as a little girl I just love this really cool adventure story. You can find out more about the Roald Dahl Museum and Storytelling Centre on their website www.roalddahlmuseum.org Roald Dahl even wrote about his own life in his own unique way. Here's a clip of Dan Stevens reading about a particularly mischievous event from Roald Dahl's childhood, known as the Great Mouse Plot. Every afternoon when the last lesson was over, the five of us would wait until the classroom had emptied. Then we would lift up the floorboard and examine our secret hoard, perhaps adding to it or taking something away. One day when we lifted it up, we found a dead mouse lying among our treasures. It was an exciting discovery. Thwaites took it out by its tail and waved it in front of our faces. What shall we do with it? he cried. It stinks, someone shouted. Throw it out of the window, quick! Hold on a tick, I said. Don't throw it away. Thwaites hesitated. They all looked at me. When writing about oneself, one must strive to be truthful. Truth is more important than modesty. I must tell you, therefore, that it was I and I alone who had the idea for the great and daring mouse plot. We all have our moments of brilliance and glory, and this was mine. Why don't we, I said, slip it into one of Mrs. Pratchett's jars of sweets? Then when she puts her dirty hand in to grab a handful, she'll grab a stinky dead mouse instead. The other four stared at me in wonder. Then, as the sheer genius of the plot began to sink in, they all started grinning. They slapped me on the back, they cheered me and danced around the classroom. We'll do it today, they cried. We'll do it on the way home. You had the idea, they said to me, so you can be the one to put the mouse in the jar. That was Dan Stevens reading an extract from Boy. It's clear that Roald Dahl, the storyteller, 
is the lasting image for most of his readers. Here are our readers with their take on Roald Dahl, the storyteller. There are three extraordinary constituent elements which he weaves together. One is the breadth of his imagination. The second is the simplicity of the structure of the story. But the third thing, at the same time, he manages to play upon the fundamental feelings of children. Fear, joy, desire, excess, loneliness, all those raw emotions that you're learning about as a child are woven into his stories uh, in the, rather brilliantly. He's just such a fantastic storyteller. You know, it's obviously aimed at a younger audience, but the storytelling is actually very precise and very natured, and um, he's just a genius. I mean, I, I honestly can't remember not being aware of Roald Dahl. I can't really... I honestly can't remember not having his books around. They are our modern-day fairy tales. So that brings us to a close, folks. But the fun doesn't end here. We've mentioned just a few of the amazing Roald Dahl audiobooks and readers in this podcast, but there's so much more. So waggle your ears and bend them just a little bit further and listen to this. The boys laughed and made faces at me, and Mr Gregg told me to go home and mind my own P's and Q's. Well, that did it. I saw red, and before I was able to stop myself, I did something I never meant to do. Every now and again, his mother would call out to him, saying, Little Billy, what are you up to in there? And Little Billy would always call back and say, I'm being good, Mummy. But Little Billy was awfully tired of being good. As the sun rose the next morning, Boggus and Bunts and Bean were still digging. They had dug a hole so deep you could have put a house into it. Let's face it, John said to himself, hairspray and shaving cream and shoe polish are all very well and they will no doubt cause some splendid explosions inside the old geezer, but what the magic mixture now needs is a touch of the real stuff. But I've never heard of a fishmonger. Are these mongers good to eat? This question baffled me a bit, so I said, Who's your friend in the next window? She is the giraffe, the pelican answered. A witch never gets caught. Don't forget that she has magic in her fingers and devilry dancing in her blood. She can make stones jump about like frogs, and she can make tongues of flame go flickering across the surface of the water. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast. When you're writing... It's rather like going on a very long walk across valleys and mountains and things and you get the first view of, of what you see and you write it down. Then you walk a bit further. 
maybe up onto the top of a hill and you look down and you see something else and you write that and you go on like that day after day getting different views of the same landscape really and the the highest mountain on the walk is obviously the end of the book because it's got to be the best view of all when everything comes together and you can look back and see everything you've done and it all ties up but it's a very very long slow process you've been listening to the penguin podcast